Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm the managing partner of Bradyware Arpeggio, a data-driven management consultancy which brings clarity to owners and managers of unique businesses facing unique strategic decisions. Our parent, Brady Ware & Company, is sponsoring this podcast. Brady Ware is a public accounting firm with offices in Dayton, Ohio, Alpharetta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, and Richmond, Indiana. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I also host a LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck, so please join that as well if you would like to engage. Today's topic is, should I purchase trade credit insurance? According to the Federal Reserve, U.S. non-financial firms had $4.5 trillion in trade credit outstanding, equal to approximately 21% of gross domestic product. So accordingly, trade credit is the largest form of short-term business financing. And um, I want to cover this topic today because uh, even though it's a niche topic, it's 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 foundational to the import export business, and we haven't really done foreign business in a while. I don't remember what podcast number it is. It had been within the first fifty when we had Gene Plavnik on to talk about should I export. Um, and, and you know we didn't really touch upon trade credit there as my as my recollection, but I think we're, what we're going to find from one of our guests is that one of the key things that make that allows import export to go, especially at scale, is the existence of this kind of insurance product. And so, if you are th- if you are whether you are exporting or perhaps even importing um, now, or you're thinking of doing so in the next couple of years, this is a topic that um, you're going to want to uh, understand as you go down that path. So joining us today are Janelle Foy and Carlos Garcia of Allianz Trade. Janelle just celebrated 15 years as Allianz. She works in business development and is focused on fostering her clients' aggressive sales growth while protecting against credit risk. And protecting against risk is is something near and dear to my heart. Prior to working with Allianz, Janelle spent seven years in sales and account management for Bell South Business, selling telecommunication services to middle market customers. She's an active member of multiple professional organizations and currently serves as president of the Secured Finance Network Atlanta chapter. For 15 years, or over 15 years, Carlos Garcia has been consulting with a variety of companies and diverse industries to help them navigate the growth of their business. As part of Allianz Trade, Carlos has access to a wide range of business-to-business trade receivables protection and credit management solutions, including credit insurance and debt collection. Carlos's goal is to leverage the knowledge he has amassed over the years to help clients deal with the inevitable hiccups that happen while growing their business. Headquartered in Paris, Allianz Trade is present in more than 50 countries with over 5,500 employees. A member of the Allianz Group, 
They are a strong global community committed to a culture where both people and performance matter. Janelle and Carlos, welcome to the Decision Vision Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you so, for having us. So tell us, let, let's start off with something very basic, because I, I, I think a lot of our listeners are not going to necessarily be familiar with this, this topic. What is trade credit insurance and why do people buy it? Well, trade credit insurance, it's very, very easy to understand, but a lot of people want to make it very difficult. But it's imagine to use something that everybody discusses and knows, brands, uh, Samsung. So let's say Samsung is going to go and sell, you know, $100,000 worth of TVs to Best Buy. What we ensure is that if Best Buy goes bankrupt, disappears, slow pays, or there's any type of political risk if they're uh, in an export market, we're going to pay them 90% of that loss. So it's basically an insurance when you give a customer terms. Now, I think something that will be helpful is to explain to our listeners and to me, because I, you know, I don't do a lot of import-export. Um, I have some sales to foreign customers, but but nothing of the magnitude you guys deal with. How do how do import export deals generally work, and where does trade credit insurance fit into that process? Well, from a um, import export, okay. Once you import the product, if you're distributing it within the U.S., okay, the minute that you reach out to us, where we would approve a buyer, okay, as soon as you cut that invoice and that product has left your warehouse, at that point is where the receivable starts and the insurance begins. On the export side, it basically starts once either it goes to the freight forwarder or you deliver it directly to the customer. That's where the insurance starts when you've lost control of the product. Um, and, and, and so what's, how does it, how does it work? I mean, I, it's, to me, it's fairly obvious about how this works from an export perspective, right? You sell something, um, uh, you sell, you sell something, you expect to get paid for it. Something happens all of a sudden, you don't think you're going to get paid. That's where the insurance comes in. Uh, but what about on the import side? How does trade credit insurance work on the import side? Well, it- it's not in a product for the import. Oh, it's not. Okay. I want to make sure. Right. Once, you import, right. once you import the product, what you're going to do with that product. So if you're going to sell it to a customer and give them terms to pay you, for example, within the U.S., that's where our insurance starts. Got it. Okay. So what are the reasons that deals go badly? What are the most typical reasons that, that your, your insurance is ultimately called upon? I, I think like you had mentioned before, when you talk about that $4.5 trillion in trade credit outstanding, you know, essentially when you give somebody 60-day terms, you're giving them a loan. It's basically a small business loan. Um, a bank would never do that without getting collateral, without getting financials, without getting, um, you know, credit terms, all the information that they need. But buyers expect you to do that on virtually no information. So what credit insurance does is it essentially provides that collateral for the loan. We're going to help you know if that customer is a good customer and a strong one to work with. And then if in the end they don't pay you, we're going to cover you and pay you for it. 
and and is is there something you know not being paid by a customer is something that that is a risk of course whether it's an international or a domestic deal why why is that risk different when you're exporting to a foreign country versus you know say a deal between a company in New Jersey and a company in Indiana well the, the biggest thing is because we cover political risk so on if you're shipping overseas and there's a political risk situation that's the biggest thing of exporting why people require the insurance or the financial institution requires the insurance it's because of that political risk factor okay so let, let's let's dive into that because i, I think it'll be helpful for our audience to get granular. What are some examples of a place where political risk puts a, puts a, you know, uh, being paid at risk? Easy, a, a real easy one, for example, is a couple of years ago when Argentina or Venezuela said, hey, you're not pulling any money out of the country to pay a U.S. debt. So a situation like that where the government gets involved and either seizes you know, the products at the port or says, hey, there's no money coming out of here to pay U.S. debt. Those are political risk events that that would cause our insurance to trigger and cover that. So yeah, um, another I think another timely example is sanctions in Russia. We had um, a client with a barge full of perishable goods that were shipping into Russia. We put the sanctions in place. They were no longer able to deliver those goods. So that then becomes a political risk claim as well. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask about that. Uh, you know, one one day you're able to do business in Russia, another day that you, you you know another day you're not. And and to me, the interesting thing that the interesting risk that that or dynamic that political risk brings into these deals is you may have a customer who is perfectly willing and able to pay, but because of some policy intervention. Right, they may not be allowed to. Now, Russia is interesting in that the policy intervention has been, not been within Russia itself, at least not initially. It's been on Western countries, including the right. United States. But um, you know, the more classic case for what you described in Latin America, where they put in currency controls, for example. Um, uh, the point is, is that the you know, even with the best of intentions, you may the the buyer the customer may simply be legally prohibited from paying even though they they can and want to do so right so you know you bring argentina i'm i'm curious about this you know, argentina is a very interesting case because you know, i'm old enough to remember at least two debt defaults right and i'm old enough to remember at least two currency devaluations where another comma was put on the on the dollar on the 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 currency maybe two commas in fact <laughs> Right. Once I'm, I'm curious in your experience, once a country um, kind of commits those acts, which then force you to bring your insurance, you know, for not well, uh, compel you to pay out insurance claims. How long does it take to get comfortable to go back into that country? You know, because it's kind of interesting, right? How short memories we have when, you know, during the, the, the 1980s default, the, the chatter was, well, Argentina can't default because nobody will ever put money into the country again, right? Within five years, it was as if nothing had ever happened. I'm curious about that, that phenomenon. Is it, is it, I know this is kind of a philosophical question, but it just fascinates me. If you're going to be an international risk, international credit, 
do you sort of have to have a short memory? Does that come with the territory? Absolutely. From every aspect of what we do, um, we have a short memory. Our, our underwriter, um, our head underwriter tells me that all the time. You know, when we go through difficult times and I tell them, you know, hey, Steve, you know, do you, do you think we learned that and we're not going to do this again? And he tells us, hey, we're, we're going to have short uh, memory and we're going to do this and worse uh, because you never know what's going to happen. And in the situation with, with Argentina, yeah, sometimes we come off the political risk. Um, currently, we're off the political risk. So if you purchase uh, credit insurance in Argentina, for example, we tell you, hey, this is excluding uh, the political risk factor because the chances of there being a political risk event um, in today's world in Argentina is extremely, extremely high. So it's, but we do have a short, very short term memory when it comes <laughs> to things. And ultimately, we are in the business of paying claims. So we can't live in a no risk market. Ultimately, we do pay claims to our clients. So we have to take on some level of risk. So I'm, I'm, I'm also curious, we hadn't discussed this before, but, I'm, you know, we talked about Argentina, we talked about Russia, places which, which historically, let's just say, have had some volatility to them. Uh, do you also ever, do you ever write policies to more, with more, frankly, stable uh, political environments, maybe even some, somebody in the G20 or the G7 that we wouldn't ordinarily have political risk, but, but maybe there's a perception in a niche area where there could be political risk. Or is it purely for the so-called risk, developing world? Political risk for certain countries is very valuable, but when we look at foreign receivables, there's multiple reasons why companies buy them. Um, a lot of banks will not lend on any receivables that aren't any foreign receivables that aren't insured. So it'll help improve a borrowing base and their uh, lending capabilities. But in addition, you know, as much as we insure foreign receivables, we also insure domestic. So companies look at it for a credit management tool. They look at it for an insurance product. They look at it to just protect the risk that is out there, regardless if it's in Argentina or Germany, the risk is still there. And the ability to go collect a receivable in Germany is going to be just as difficult as going to Argentina and collecting it. So that's where we kind of step in and make sure they're going to get paid for those receivables. Okay. So yeah. So that, that's really interesting too. So the, the political risk is not is not limited to a foreign or a, a distinct policy, but no. but simply the the uh, the risk of trying to collect on a judgment in a foreign judicial system is something that also is insured against. Well, not absolutely. Not, so yeah, it, it's got a it's got a default. Uh, what we cover with the easy way to understand it is we cover the inability to pay. Not, I don't want to pay, but right. it has to be, there has to be, hey, I can't pay for X, Y, Z reason. Not, hey, I don't want to pay because, you know, the, the product was bad. Yeah. No, there's got to be an inability to pay. Got it. Okay. So um, let, let's say somebody's been listening to this and they're thinking, oh, you know, I really ought to think about trade credit insurance. I just didn't know that this existed or hadn't learned anything about it. Um, what is the process like to apply for a, an insurance policy from you guys or somebody similar to you? The process is really pretty simple. It's an application and a recent copy of their aging report. Um, oftentimes we can help them complete the application, but it's, it's a pretty simple process. 
turnaround. We can do it in five to 10 business days. So we can have a quote for them and a proposal in front of them pretty quickly. And over time, does a relationship with the customer matter? In other words, is, is it easier once you've done a deal or two with a particular customer, do you find that it's, it's easier to underwrite more policies for that person? Is there benefit to that relationship to go back to, to for example, you guys, Allianz or somebody else? Um, or is is each opportunity purely a standalone exercise that's evaluated on its own merits? So we don't generally write transactional policies. When we write a policy, it's usually for a one to two year term. The idea being that then we bundle all of their customers in or a portion of their customers and we continue to insure those for the policy period. So unlike, say, a letter of credit where for every transaction you have to get a new letter of credit, with credit insurance, we set a policy in place and you're covered and insured for all those buyers for the policy period. Okay, that's interesting. So. Uh, I, I didn't know that. I, I presume that that these would be transaction-based policies, but in fact, you'll write a policy for all transactions, presumably between, <coughs> excuse me, a customer and all countries, I'm sorry, all their customers in one country for a fixed period of time. Is that how that works? So like if I were going to do business in Germany, for example, that, that you'd be writing a one to two-year policy on all the business that I do in Germany over a one to two-year period? Essentially, we underwrite at a buyer level. So they would let us know they're doing business with ABC company. They would tell us how much they need that insured for. And that goes to our local underwriting department. So we have, like you had mentioned earlier, we have offices in 50 countries. We cover 200 markets. So if you have a customer in Germany, that request goes to our local German risk department. And they determine whether or not that customer is insurable. So in addition to the insurance, you're also getting a credit management tool that helps you understand if a company is insurable. We continue to monitor their risk throughout the policy period. And you know that ABC company is insured for X amount of dollars. So you know based on that policy exactly how much coverage you have on that particular buyer. Oh, I see. Okay. So this is it's 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 really focused on one particular trade relationship over a period of time, right? One buyer, one seller. Mm-hmm. Coverage is at a buyer level. The policy itself is and combined of all those buyers, a combination yep. of those buyers together. Understood. So um, th- that brings me to another question I want to make sure to ask today, because it, it seems to me that that bringing in create, I'm sorry, bringing in a trade credit insurance can actually have a useful sort of collateral, no pun intended, but collateral uh, impact in that your what you do must be a great source of due diligence, right? And that's got to be one of the hardest things with a with a new foreign customer, how do you kind of check them out? Uh, you know, is there a German or an Austrian version of, you know, D&B or Hoover's? Does that even matter anymore? Right. Um, but but your analysis can be very useful tactical intelligence to the customer. Exactly. We're like, easy way to understand it, we're like their, their credit manager with a checkbook. So if we, you know, your credit manager makes a mistake, you can't go to them and say, hey, you made a mistake. I need uh, 200 grand for this loss. That's what we do. We, if we review the buyer, look at their financials, in some cases, make a decision. If we make a mistake, you receive a check. So uh, now, most of the time when we talk about doing foreign business, I think we tend to 
I think we automatically think about selling products to foreign buyers. But in point of fact, of course, America is a pretty big exporter of professional services abroad, especially architectural services, among others. Uh, can can services be insured in this way as well? Yes. Any service, any product, Absolutely. as long as you give terms, um, 30, 60, 90, 120 days, uh, we can insure it. Okay. And, and I'm curious, this, probably, this may be a silly question, but I, it, it occurs to me that I wonder if, if in the terms of a, of a particular transaction, there might be a question or discussion over who actually pays for the insurance policy. Right. Is the is the insurance policy going to be paid for by the seller or the buyer? Maybe both, depending on the structure of the transaction. Is that a thing or or does the does the seller always pay for the insurance? Or maybe the buyer always pays. I, I truly don't know. As a general rule, the seller will pay for the policy. Um, but I've certainly had situations where a bank has required credit insurance and the bank has paid for the policy, a parent company, even the insurer's supplier. I mean, there's multiple cases where somebody else may pay for the policy, but generally as a rule, the supplier, the person that owns the policy and manages it, they're the ones that pay for the premium. Okay. And and how long does it take? So let's say somebody wants to uh, take out insurance on a, on a particular um, trade activity. How long does it take from somebody contacting one of you guys to Assuming that a policy is writable, they, you know that that works out. How long does it take to go from phone call to being insured? Two, three days. How much? Two or three days. Oh, two or three days. That's pretty quick. Yeah. So you're not going to get in the way of uh, you're not going to get in the way of a transaction happening. No, absolutely not. Now, within your within the context of political risk, does that in any way cover uh, currency risk, or is that a, a just a totally separate? Separate thing. Yeah, it's separate. We don't cover uh, devaluation of currency. Okay. So in an insurance policy like this, how are they how are they priced or how is the pricing expressed? And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I have car insurance, right? So I just pay a number of dollars per month, right? But there are certain, I think there are certain other kinds of insurance or financial instruments that are expressed as a percentage of the amount of the transaction or expected transactions over time, or maybe something else. So can you talk to me about kind of how, what the model looks like in terms of pricing these policies? The policy goes uh, based most of them. Okay. They go based on an, an insured sales volume annually, and then it's a percent. So to give you a little bit of an idea, Let's say a company comes up to us and says, hey, I want to insure my receivables. My sales on credit are $10 million a year. Our underwriter will come back and say, okay, your rate's going to be a quarter of 1%. We take a quarter of 1%, multiply it times 10 million, and it's 25 grand a year. And you, we give you two options. Either one, you can pay it in full, or you can finance it at 25% down in quarterly payments. Um, it's basically that simple. We do have policies that are coverage-based. On, for example, single debtor transactions. Hey, I need a big hot topic now is the cruise line. Hey, I need you know five million dollars on cruise line. We'll tell them okay, it'll cost you you know 042 percent a month. So that we have two options to price policies. 
And are the and terms I think, fair? Sorry, go ahead, Janelle. Well, I was just going to say, I think one thing to point out that's a big misnomer in credit insurance is you do not have to insure the entire portfolio. Right. So if you only want to insure your export business, if you only want to insure key accounts, um, we can carve out that business. And essentially, every policy is customized for the customer's needs. So depending on what they're looking for, we can structure a policy to meet their needs. And do the terms vary at all in a policy? You know, my world is M&A. So I, I tell clients all the time that in, in an M&A deal, uh, price and terms are dancing partners. And you might get a better price, but you may have to give up more strict terms. Or maybe from an insurance perspective, maybe there's a, a quote higher deductible, right, in order to lower your fees. Does that kind of conversation happen in your world or the terms are the terms pretty much standardized no matter what what you're insuring? No, there is a little bit of a wiggle room, um, you know, increase in deductible and increase uh, price share. But at the end of the day, there's got to be a um, there's there's a cost to turn the lights on. So it's not like, hey, there's, you know, at some point we're going to say, it doesn't matter if you lowered that another 20%, it's still not going to change. It's not going to change the price. So when you, when a customer approaches you for an insurance policy like this, what sorts of information are you going to be requesting to review? So on the application, you know, the information is pretty simple. We're looking at the annual sales of what we're insuring when we talked about being able to segment your business. So we look at the annual sales in the event of foreign receivables. We look at how those break down by country. We look at the industry you're in, your loss history, the terms you sell on, all those things kind of rolling together to determine the premium. Um, so is, is there a, a minimum trans uh, minimum, not, not transaction. I keep thinking transaction. That's not right. <laughs> Is there a minimum? Is there a minimum amount of, of sales volume? Let me put it that way, or even a maximum sales volume that that um, you or others like you will will consider. Now there is no minimum. What we have is a minimum premium. So for a domestic policy, the minimum premium is going to be ten thousand. For an export policy, it's going to be fifteen thousand because of the coverage of the political risk. Okay. And basically, there is no maximum. Okay, so then. At that point, customers will self-select that. Obviously, if it's a $10,000 transaction, spending all on insurance doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Um, interesting. Okay. So um, I think one of your competitors, either directly or in- indirectly, is going to be somebody like Exim Bank or Media over in Japan, things of, you know, entities of that nature who are designed to be, in particular, export uh, promotion entities. And if I'm not mistaken, they provide also provide some sort of trade credit insurance, typically based on political risk. How do you coexist with them, or what? Where does it make sense to come to you guys versus to go to an Exim Bank or a similar authority? How do you how, how do you help clients kind of navigate that decision? Exim Bank really was developed to help support small businesses. And really where its strength is, is at that transactional level, like you were talking about earlier. So if you do four or five transactions a year, small export business, that's where XM really does well. Once you start getting into regular business and you really are doing a decent amount of volume on the export side, um, at that point, private insurance is 
going to be more cost effective. We also have the access to more information. So we have the risk underwriters throughout the world that are providing the data that somebody like an XM bank wouldn't be able to offer. And in addition, we don't have requirements for where the products are made. XM requires that a large portion of it be um, manufactured here in the United States. And also we can cover domestic receivables, and that's something that XM can't do. How does a company prepare to work with somebody like you? What, what, what do they need to do in order to make your job easier so you can you know, quickly and effectively put an, a, a, an insurance policy in place? Basically, it's very, very easy. All we're going to ask them for, like Janelle said, that information on the application. But moving forward, all we ask them is for three pieces of information. What's the name of the customer you're going to sell to? What's their address and how much you need? That'll go to our underwriting team. And on the U.S. side, from instant to 48 hours, you're going to get an answer. One of three answers. Either one, the buyer's insured for that amount. Two, the buyer's insured for a lesser amount and the reason why. Or three, hey, stay away from this buyer. They're not insurable and this is the reason why. On an export, it could it's a little longer. It could be from instant to five days with the same uh, information. So from a customer's point of view, it's basically from taking it from a situation where they're going from the credit manager, sitting on their desk to review it, to maybe going to the credit manager, you know, he or she looking at it, putting it in our system, making a decision, and now they can make a business decision. Do they want to still uh, sell to that buyer or not? So it's it's really not a lot of, uh, you know, things, effort that they got to put on their part to get a, a transaction insured. I'm talking with Janelle Foy and Carlos Garcia, and the topic is, should I purchase trade credit insurance? So uh, a question I like to ask on almost every show is, who shouldn't get trade credit insurance? Is, is, there, is there a profile of somebody that maybe should be thinking about it, but you kind of tell them, you know, don't waste your time. This probably isn't the right kind of product for you. Customers that don't give credit to their customer. Someone that does prepaid COD, uh, okay. you know, on delivery. But as soon as they want to grow, the only way to grow is for them to start giving terms to their customers. At that point, they have to come get the insurance. I would say anybody that's got an accounts receivables should have credit insurance. Um, so are there, are there countries right now that are basically on a no-fly list? Are there countries that you just pretty much a, a, an application is going to be done on arrival that you just can't? That risk is just simply uninsurable. Well, in my world out of Miami here, the biggest one is uh, <laughs> Venezuela and Cuba. Okay. Those are n- n- no non-starters. Um, all right. So this has been a good, a good conversation. I've, I've learned a lot. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are questions that I should have, that, that uh, our client, I'm sorry, my listeners would have liked me to have asked or that uh, we our listeners would have liked us to spend more time on. If somebody wants to contact you for more information about this topic, can they do so? And if so, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, they can just, uh, I'm sure you're going to provide, you know, our email and phone number. Uh, Janelle and I are regularly available. They can just shoot us an email or give us a call. And if we don't answer the phone on the second, within 24 hours, they'll have a call from us. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Janelle Foy and Carlos Garcia so much for sharing their, ex- their expertise with us. 
We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I am on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also check out my LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's group that doesn't suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.